Hello and welcome to the podcast edition of Scripps 5 Must Know Things, this time for the business week ended 14th April 2023. This is Ian Haydock. This time, partial US clinical hold for erobrutinib, Takeda pulls back early AAV gene therapy and rare hematology research, Lily and Novo shape up for obesity battle, Veer's new CEO talks to Scripp, and the declining state of pain R&D. Merck KGAA's Phase 3 oral BTK inhibitor, evobrutinib, for multiple sclerosis, has been put on partial clinical hold by the US FDA after liver events, increasing concerns over a possible class safety effect. Aisha Sharma writes the decision came after two patients in Phase 3 studies of evobrutinib saw lab values indicating drug-induced liver injury, although both patients were asymptomatic and saw their liver enzyme levels return to normal upon treatment discontinuation. The partial hold means new patients cannot be treated with evobrutinib in the US and those with less than 70 days exposure to the drug must stop treatment. However, all patients in the drug's Phase 3 evolution program in relapsing multiple sclerosis have passed 70 days of treatment, meaning the studies should proceed as normal. The evolution program is comparing evobrutinib with Sanofi's standard of care or Baggio, and the trials are set to read out in the last quarter of 2023. Whether the liver injury events affect the drug's approval prospects will depend on whether they turn out to be cases of High's law, said J.P. Morgan analyst Richard Vosser in the same-day note. The FDA defines High's law as drug-induced liver injuries associated with at least three-fold elevations above the upper limit of normal liver enzymes, where one or more subjects also display serum bilirubin elevation of more than twice the upper limit of normal, assuming no confounding factors are present, such as hepatitis or acute liver disease. In both patients, the first two criteria were met, but Merck is working to identify potential confounding factors. The hold on evobrutinib is not surprising because this is not the first instance where patient recruitment in a BTK inhibitor trial was put on hold in MS, data monitor healthcare analyst Joseph Jacob told Scripp. In July 2022, the FDA put a partial clinical hold on rival Sanofi's contender tolibrutinib. The trial has since resumed enrolment. Later that year, in December, Chinese firm Innocare Pharma's Phase 2 asset Orelabrutinib was placed on a partial hold. Takeda has discontinued preclinical R&D work in the area of adeno-associated virus gene therapies, as well as research and preclinical efforts in rare haematology. The decision was prompted by a desire to focus resources on its core therapeutic areas and candidates already in late-stage development, a spokesperson from the major Japanese firm, told Scripps Lisa Takagi. However, it did not release further details of the location or number of staff that would be affected by the decision. Takeda stressed it would maintain operations at its rare disease unit while working to support our people engaged in AAV gene therapy activities as we explore externalization strategies. It added that the decision would have no other impact on its clinical development pipeline or commercial products. Maintaining its current strategic interest in four core therapeutic areas, oncology, rare genetics and haematology, neuroscience and gastroenterology, 
The firm stated that its rare disease unit will focus on late-stage development programs moving forward. These include TAK279, an oral TYK2 inhibitor, for which Takeda recently presented positive Phase 2b results in moderate to severe plaque psoriasis. The Japanese farmer has also been expanding its pipeline candidates in the gastroenterology area, having just announced a new licensing deal with N8 Pharma for several antibodies, with a primary focus on celiac disease. In the area of non-AAV-based gene therapies, the firm has also been actively partnering over the past couple of years, including with Selector Biosciences for next-generation gene therapies for lysosomal storage disorders, GeneVant Sciences for non-viral gene therapies for liver disease, and Poseida Therapeutics for candidates for liver and hematopoietic stem cell-directed indications. It is not yet clear if the deal with Poseida could potentially be impacted by Decatur's termination of early rare haematology research, given that this includes a preclinical candidate for haemophilia A. The battle for control of the multi-billion dollar diabetes and obesity treatment market is about to heat up, with Eli Lilly's Munjaro and Novo Nordisk's Wagovi Ozempic set to shortly unveil key phase 3 studies. While both the weekly injectable drugs are already used in type 2 diabetes treatment, Novo has opened up leadership in obesity since GLP-1 agonist Wagovi gained US FDA approval two years ago. Andrew McConaughey writes. Last year, Novo doubled its GLP-1 franchise obesity sales to around $2.5 billion, an unprecedented growth fueled by huge consumer interest and controversial off-label use of Zempic, its diabetes-only semaglutide brand. Munjaro is expected to gain FDA approval for obesity by the end of 2023, and analysts are predicting its sales could overtake Wagovi provided Lilly can consolidate early signs of its drug's potentially superior efficacy. The competitors are now preparing to unveil their next big studies, with Lilly's Surmount 2 study expected to come first with a readout in April, which looks at patients with both type 2 diabetes and obesity, and analysts are keenly awaiting its outcome to gauge if it can consolidate its advantage over Wagovi. Both companies know that gaining acceptance of obesity drug treatment from the medical community and payers remains the biggest hurdle, where the field is still seen as a lifestyle medication by many, not helped by it becoming a social media craze. Novo is first in pursuing greater legitimacy with a cardiovascular outcome study called SELECT, which has recruited 17,500 non-diabetes patients with obesity. This is expected to produce final results by mid-2023. Meanwhile, Lilly is expecting readouts from two other studies later this year, which look to address real-world issues around long-term weight control. Bunjara's own outcome study in type 2 diabetes patients, surpass CVOT, is also underway with a primary completion date of October 2024. The outcome studies and the Medicare spending debates will be the big factors behind the peak sales of the two brands. Goldman Sachs forecasts 2025 Munjaro sales of $9.9 billion, of which $1.1 billion would come from obesity, rising to $27.4 billion, $9.9 billion for obesity, by 2030, 
although those are considerably higher than consensus estimates. Meanwhile, last month, Jeffrey's forecast peak worldwide annual sales of Wagovi reaching $10 billion and $15 billion for Azempic. Moving on, after a stellar three years at Bayer, Marianne de Backer had plenty of CEO job offers. But the lure of returning to the infectious disease space to lead via biotechnology proved too strong to resist. At the end of January, de Backer was unveiled as the successor to biotech industry veteran George Skangos at Via, joining from Bayer where she had been global head of pharma strategy, business development and licensing open innovation. Speaking to Scripps, Kevin Grogan, just a day after taking over the hot seat at Via, de Backer reflected on her time at Bayer where I focused on setting the strategy for growth of the pharma business and we decided there was a lack of diversification in modalities. We said we're going to go to cell and gene therapy and that led to acquisitions that needed to happen because the knowledge was just not there. It was a very logical process of seeing how can we get to grow and in what areas do we need to play. Debaca oversaw five acquisitions and more than 60 alliances at Bayer but her extensive experience in the sector goes way beyond business development. Much of her career was spent in various roles at Johnson & Johnson with a big chunk in R&D and a big chunk in commercial, launching both a neuroscience and an immunology drug in Europe, as well as leading promotion and co-marketing arrangements, corporate development and venture investing on both sides of the Atlantic. Despite her successes at both Bayer and J&J, Debaca said, in the autumn of 2021, I decided that I wanted to be a CEO. Then came the approach from Via, which is exactly at the stage where we can grow it to the next level. It's not a startup, right? It's a company that has already shown twice that it can go from an idea to a product on the market, Debaca said. Revenues from COVID-19 antibody, Zivudi, have helped Via compile a very healthy balance sheet of more than $2 billion in cash and equivalents, she noted, adding that it also has a number of products in Phase 2. The second half of this year will reveal how rich that pipeline is, with closely watched data readouts from three trials in hepatitis B and D, as well as influenza. The firm has high hopes for VIA 2482, which is in the Phase 2 Peninsula trial that is looking at two potentially first-in-class intramuscularly administered doses of the monoclonal antibody in the prevention of influenza A. There is also much excitement around VIA's hepatitis programmes. Initial data from Part B of the ongoing Phase 2 March trial, evaluating combinations of its siRNA drug, VIA 2218, the monoclonal antibody, VIA 3434, and pegylated interferon alpha for hepatitis B are expected in the second half of 2023. Debaca noted that I'm obviously a first-time CEO, so I will be learning a lot, and I look forward to that. Throughout my career, I've had that learning mindset, which I think is required to be a good leader. Finally, innovation in the pain and addiction treatment therapeutic spaces is declining, and so is investment in those areas. The Biotechnology Innovation Organization, or BIO, notes in a new report offering a snapshot of R&D in those areas between 2017 and 2022. 
The pipeline of active clinical development candidates for pain indications declined 44% from 220 to 124 candidates over that five-year span, the report finds. In tandem with that trend is a higher attrition rate for R&D in the pain therapy space, according to the State of Innovation in Pain and Addiction, issued on 2nd February, Joseph Haas writes. Bio used data from sightline platforms to conduct its analysis, including BiomedTracker and TrialTrove. Only 0.7% of pain drug candidates advanced from Phase 1 to US approval, the report notes, the lowest success rate of any therapeutic area measured by Bio, and a fraction of the 6.5% overall success rate in drug development. It also reflects a decline. In Bio's previous report on pain therapy innovation, which covered the 2006 to 15 period, the success rate in the pain space was 2%, compared with 7.7% for drug development as a whole. Of 220 drug candidates for pain that were in clinical development or under review at the US FDA in 2017, 170 have since been suspended, while 29 remain in development and 21 advanced to approval. For candidates that reach phase 3, only about 20% advanced to regulatory submission. And outside of migraine, where seven new drugs targeted the CGRP pathway have been approved since 2017, there have been zero approvals of pain drugs with novel targets by the FDA during the 2017 to 2022 period, the report points out. Innovation in the sector seems even weaker when looking at the number of new molecular entities for pain indications, which have declined by 40% from 125 in the 2017 report to 75 in the new report. With respect to the pain pipeline, when you break it down to the new molecules that are going after novel targets, it's actually a very small pipeline, David Thomas, who's Bio's Senior VP of Industry Research, told Scrip. And the astonishing thing is that the success rate is going down, so it's lower than antibiotics, it's lower than what we reported five years ago. Investment in the pain therapy space has also paled compared to other therapeutic spaces, particularly cancer, Bio pointed out. US biopharma companies developing novel drugs for pain have raised roughly $860 million over the past decade, the report states, compared with $35.7 billion for oncology venture investment. As in the troubled anti-infective space, Bio says incentives are needed to increase investment in the pain and addiction spaces, including regulatory and policy changes to a reimbursement status quo, in which cheaper but often less effective and less safe treatment options remain the preference. At base, however, Thomas said, basic research into brain function and chemistry is still needed to spur innovation. What we really need is an increased effort in target discovery. That's all for this week. Many thanks for listening. All these stories are linked in the article accompanying this podcast and are just a fraction of those that appeared in script last week. Log in to access all of our content in full or take a free trial to see what you're missing. Bye for now.